Lucas, your friend Derek is a very important guy in this church. He just knows where everything is. <laughs> so, so surrender is a voluntary, progressive yielding of my will to someone else. And so why is it voluntary? Because it can't be forced. Why is it progressive? Because it just doesn't seem possible to lay your life down in one shot. You realize as soon as you think you've laid your life down that there is more to lay down. And so it's voluntary, it's progressive, and it's yielding what? Not your body, not your mind, but your will, where decisions are made. Yielding your will to someone else, in this case, Christ. And with what intent? That, oh God, you can take my will, and now that you have my will, you can shape me into anything you want me to be. So that we said that. And then here's another, um, um, this is the flip side of it. It is also... Reckless abandon, it is also reckless abandon, it is also reckless abandon without self-consideration, without self-consideration or consideration for self. So on one hand, it is very deliberate, it is intentional, it is progressive, it is voluntary. On the other hand, it carries in it this sense of reckless abandon. And even though we use the words reckless abandon, nothing that you abandon to God is reckless if you know his nature. So I used to say that faith has risk in it. Really, it has no risk in it if the king of the universe is the one you are risking it with. So, it, so, so surrender also carries reckless abandon because otherwise we'll spend years trying to figure out whether the cost-benefit analysis allows me to surrender. There is a reckless abandon to it and without consideration for self. And every time you do that, you'll hear God saying, come. This is what Peter did. When there was a reckless abandon of his will, his mind, his heart, and he kept hearing the word come. The strange thing is God will ask us to do nothing that he already has not done himself. And Jesus totally, without reservations, unconditionally surrendered his life to me. When I say to me, it sounds kind of blasphemous, but the fact is he totally, without reservations, and unconditionally surrendered or laid down his life for me. And in that sense, to me. Don't hang on to the to me. The intent is that he did it, so he showed how this can be done. And then we talked about the first surrender. We said the first surrender. Before we surrender to anything else, the first surrender, and you can listen to this, it's on the website. The first surrender is to rest. The first surrender is to rest. And we talked about how rest is seizing Rest is seizing from self-generated, seizing from self-generated striving, and instead being sustained by the proceeding word and the presence of God. That's what we defined rest as last time. That the first surrender is to rest, where you cease from self-generated striving, and you labor to enter. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. You labor to enter into 
the seventh day, the Sabbath, because it says in Hebrews 4, 10, and 11 that God has rested, won't you now also rest and cease from your works? So we cease from our works, we cease from self-striving, we cease from generating life ourselves, and instead we lean back on his presence and the proceeding word of God, the word that he speaks on a daily basis, going out every money morning, collecting manna and saying, this is our daily bread, this is what we will live by, Obeying Deuteronomy 8.3 where it says, Man shall not live by bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that, we said, is the first rest. The second rest, we said, was the second surrender is the right to myself. The right to myself. That's the second surrender. The right to myself. And it's based on Matthew 16, 24, where it says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Or in other words, hey, Jacob, you want to be my disciple? You've got to give up your right to yourself. And who do you give it up to? To me. So that I can do what? So that I can pour you out. I can send you so I can bury you, so I can break you, so I can multiply you according to my purpose. Just think of that, eh? Guys, go over it again, huh? Just think of what he's saying. That you cannot be my disciple, Jacob, unless you give up your right to yourself. And you must give up your right to yourself to me, says God. Why? So that I can pour you out, I can break you, and break doesn't mean he puts you over his knee and just snaps you in two. Break you as in sculpts you so that you look like what you're supposed to. So that I can pour you out, break you, send you out, bury you so that you disappear. Hidden in Christ, Colossians 3. Bury you, multiply you. Because nothing multiplies without first dying. Multiply you. As and when I please, with whomever I please, you must give your right, up to your, uh, your right to yourself. And we said that once you do that, the moment you surrender your right to yourself, what do you become? You become a servant son. The moment you give up your right to yourself, you become a servant son. And now you're entirely dependent on the master. You're entirely dependent on the master who guarantees you the seven essentials that man was promised in the Garden of Eden. We talked about this last week. So that's a summation of it. I will continue from there. Let me ask you what those seven essentials of Eden were. First one was dignity. Let us make man in our image. These are guarantees. This will never be taken away from you. See, the strange thing is, the seven things guaranteed in Eden to man, regardless of whether he sinned or not, it was guaranteed to man. And our sins are because we seek these things outside of God. Humankind seeks these seven things outside of God. What are the seven things? Dignity. We seek our dignity outside of God. In things, in people, in wives, in cars, in husbands, in positions, in jobs. 
dignity. Second, security. Where he put them in the Eden and he said, you'll be safe here. That nothing can touch me. Nothing. Just think of this. Huh? Nothing can touch me because God is my protector. This is the kind of security he's guaranteeing. So the only way I can be touched is if I break the hedge or open the door to let the serpent in. But nothing can touch me because of the security he guarantees. These are ridiculous securities. And what do we do? We go and seek for this outside of God. Guys, we must think extreme when it comes to God because there's nothing average, mediocre, middle of the road about him. Nothing. So that's the kind of security he gives. Dignity, security. Third, blessing and provision. Blessing and provision. Where he said, listen, I'm not asking you to work so that you earn a living. I'm asking you to work because I work, but I just want to provide you a living. So he provides them everything they need for life and godliness. And then he says to them, hey, by the way, why don't you work too? Because I enjoy working. So why don't you work? I'll help you tend the garden. And so disconnect your, your wages from your, or, or your livelihood from your work. These are the things that we have so messed up in. Where I cannot connect my livelihood to my work. There is no connection really. Just think of it guys. Think of what we are saying. We are saying that the world is wrong. And that God is right. And that there is absolutely no connection between work and livelihood. When Paul says that one who, should, who is idle and does not work should not eat, what he was trying to say was, hey, you can't sponge off people. He wasn't saying there's a connection. Because God first provided provision, then he provided work. It is so deeply ingrained in us, especially in North America. Where you're taught, you've got to learn how to work and earn a living. It's been taught to us so, so strongly that it becomes so difficult to disconnect it. Fourth, companionship and intimacy. Companionship and intimacy. He provided this. He said, listen, leave alone that I will walk with you in the cool of the evening every day. But that aside, I'll also provide you someone with flesh like Eve, bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Intimacy and companionship. Intimacy and companionship. If you want to get married, go back to Eden and claim your promises, man. Don't, don't look at Derek. If you want to get married, go back to Eden and claim your promises. Intimacy and companionship was promised. I wasn't through a dog or a cat. So as much as you love your dogs and cats, and I have respect for both those animals, um, please remember that if that was the case, then Adam would have gone for the elephant. Because he had a memory too. And so, companionship and intimacy. Fifth one, purpose. God gave man purpose. And... Uh, 
in um, uh, Adam's case, the purpose was, listen, I want you to multiply, I want you to subdue, and I want you to replenish. And Jesus has taken that very mandate, and he's come and said to us, the same mandate taken right out of Genesis 1.28, plonked into Matthew 28, which is, hey, I want you to make disciples of all nations, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, multiply and replenish the earth. Fill it with mature Christ-reflecting groups of people that worship me. Right out of Matthew two, uh, Genesis 1.28, straight into Matthew 28. Sixth. Freedom. Where he said, I'll give you my spirit so that you can walk in such liberty, it'll be crazy. Where you can dance under the sun, where you can wrestle with me, where you can... Uh, have the same intimacy that I have with the Father, where you can access the Father like I do. Freedom, absolute freedom. And I don't, I mean, one of the, uh, if I were to take one statement of freedom in the Bible that I think represents freedom the most, what would yours be? What would, you, what would be one verse in the Bible which is free indeed? Cool, that's one. Another one? Because it'll be different for all of us. Any other verses that just exemplify freedom? Nothing is impossible with God. Is impossible with God. God so loved gives absolute freedom. My favorite one is John thirteen two. For me, that is so liberating. It says Jesus knowing where he came from and knowing where he was going. He was so sure that he could walk freely on earth. Free of fears, free of shame, free of pleasing people, free of being destroyed by people, free of being worried about stuff, knowing where he came from and knowing where he was going. It is such a freedom statement, man. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. And that was five. One more. There's one more. I know we went over this last week, but it's so critical to know this by heart so that these things you don't seek outside of God. Dignity, security, provision, purpose, companionship. Oh, we finished it. Oh, there's a seventh one. What's the seventh one? No. I think I clubbed two together. Because I think it's done. <laughs> so, I, I guess pastors have a tendency to always go with sevens and tens when it was actually six. Yeah. Okay, so we'll continue from there. Guys, um, the ultimate objective of servanthood why does why be a servant? Why give up your right to yourself the moment you give up your right to yourself? And keep thinking of this. Hey, the only way we can work some truths into our life is to keep going over them again and again. I must give up my right to myself. During this week, there have been multiple occasions where 
I had to choose whether I want to give up my right to myself, be it on the road, be it at the elevator, be it in a line, be it when someone is saying something. I have multiple opportunities every week, week to give up my right to myself. And the moment you give up your right to yourself, you become a servant. And the, the ultimate objective, the ultimate objective of servanthood is to provide a body for his will and his glory. That's the ultimate objective of servanthood. Why is God looking for servant sons? God is looking for servant sons because sons have a relationship with the father and will be ready to do anything he wants them to do. But now that you're a son and you choose to become a servant, just as Jesus was a son and chose to become a servant, it's now everything that you are. Your body is basically a vehicle or a way to provide God a means to accomplish, achieve, exhibit his glory and his will here on earth. Therefore, we go to Luke chapter 1, verse 38, and Mary is there. And Mary says, um, the angel says to Mary, you shall conceive a child. And Mary says, let it be done to me as you will. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Jesus is before his father, and he says to the father, offerings and sacrifices you did not want, but what you wanted is a body. And here I come to forgive you myself so that you can use me to win the world back to yourself. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Just read it. Hebrews 10, verse 5. The beautiful thing is there's nothing that Jesus asks of us that he hasn't himself done. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Because I don't think I quoted it right. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Here's what it says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Beautiful, eh? The objective, the ultimate objective of servanthood is, O oh God, I've gotten up. Here is my body for your use, for your glory and your will. Think like this, huh? As you begin to think like this, you become it. Here's another statement that really bothered me. The ultimate objective, the ultimate objective of surrender is the proclamation of the gospel. The ultim ultimate objective of surrender is the proclamation of the gospel. I'll, and I'll show you. I was a little bothered by this because you would think that if God wants his glory shown and you provide him yourself, he'll use you to do signs, miracles, and wonders and let his glory be known that way. He'll use you to take your money and provide for the poor and he'll let his glory be known that way. But the ultimate objective of surrender, when God is saying, hey, so you want to surrender, you want to give yourself to me, my ultimate objective with your surrender is the proclamation of the gospel. And that bothered me because that is much harder than miracle signs and wonders. 
So if you go to Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 and 16, Paul says there that I was separated right from when I was born for one reason alone, to proclaim the gospel. Go to Galatians 1, 15 and 16. Galatians 1. Uh, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. The point being that the reason he was set apart by God was for the proclamation of the gospel. So we might say, but that might just be Paul. So let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Verse 29. See, one of the things Jesus would add as a suffix to everything he said was for my sake and the sake of the gospel, for my sake and the sake of the gospel. And in Mark chapter 10, you know this verse because we've talked about it before. Verse 29, 29, he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me. And this is exactly what bond servants do. Bond servants leave their home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, fields for me and the gospel for two things. For, for my sake and the sake of the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Let's go to verse 45. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. No, we won't go to Mark 10 45. Mark 10, 29, sorry. That's it. Oh no, verse 45 actually says it. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The point is this, guys. You were called to be a son servant. And you were called to be a son servant so that every day you could provide God a body for his glory and his will. That surrender, the ultimate objective of that surrender, is for the proclamation of the gospel, for his sake and the sake of the gospel. Glory has been unfortunately mistaken in churches as either stuff falling from the ceiling or people falling on the floor. And that isn't glory. At the end of the day, nothing is as glorious as the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel is the ultimate objective of surrender. And you cannot escape it. Someone wrote to me last week and they said, sometimes these uh, teachings are really hard. And I said, I absolutely agree that these teachings are really hard. And unfortunately, we won't be taking the easy route for the next conceivable uh, future. But I said the way to handle it is try not to wrestle with it, but to hold on to it so that you don't let go until daylight. 
You try to wrestle with it, it'll break you, dislocate your hip. Because when we wrestle with it, when we grapple with it, we try to come up with ways of thinking that'll somehow make it a little softer. And every time you do that, these hard truths will dislocate your hip. The way to go about it is grab onto it and do not let go. Time and time again, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, hold on to it. Don't let go till daylight comes. And what happens then is in the process, your name will be changed. But if you try to take it head on, these truths will collide with you. And because we are not ready for it, the brilliance of these truths will cause you either to say, I am useless, I cannot do this, it is impossible. Or you will try to come up with a way to negate or diminish the strength of these truths. So the only way to handle this is to hold on to it saying, Jesus, I am not capable, but I will not let go of you. And he will say, let go of me. What is it to you? And I'll say, I'll not let go of you. And you see the sun coming up. And as the sun comes up, he says, what is your name? And he changes you. That is the only way to deal with these truths, man. Otherwise, you'll have to go to a monastery and become a monk. Uh, I heard the food isn't good. I was in a monastery two years ago. Wasn't good. It was in Austria. It was a real monastery. Beautiful, huh? My God, they knew how to build, but they didn't know how to cook. <laughs> Guys, here's the other thing, huh? Once you enter into servanthood, you enter into rulership. It is such an odd kingdom. You enter into servanthood. Such a strange kingdom this is. You enter into servanthood. But in doing that, you enter into rulership. Or government. So odd, eh? You would think that by deciding that you will be a servant son, you're letting go of ruling. No, you're letting go of dominion. No, the moment you enter into servanthood and decide that I will nail my ear to the doorpost, you now enter into rulership. I said this last week, Jesus does not say, well done, good and faithful son. He always says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he makes another statement in addition to it, which is this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over five cities. Now come and rule over ten. So there is no question of anybody making any headway in the kingdom without servanthood, because rulership comes by servanthood. You can make headway in a church, but you can't make headway in a kingdom. You can make headway in the church, but you can't make headway in the kingdom. Meaning, in a church, you can be appointed to positions, you can be elected to positions, you can have a few amazing gifts and we'll give you a position. You might play the guitar and sing, so we'll put you up front. All that stuff is what the church can do for you, but in their kingdom, servanthood is directly connected to rulership. And when God sees a servant son, he says, gosh, I got a king in the making here. Odd how this works. 
So you see that in Matthew 25, verse 23, where it says, I will make you ruler over many things. Well done, good and faithful servant. I will make you ruler over many things. And so, in other words, rulership is tethered to the servant nature of God in you. Rulership is tethered to the servant nature of God in you. Rulership is tethered or tied to the servant nature of God in you. I said this last time and it's so worth saying because it just shocks your system. God, in his essence, is a server or a servant. God, in his essence, is a server or a servant. Wouldn't you like to be like him, Jacob? God, in his essence, is a server or a servant. Wouldn't you like to be like him, Jacob? One more statement before we go on to the third surrender, and that is that um, faith increases through faithful service. Faith increases through faithful service. So servanthood results in an increase of faith. Because as you prove yourself faithful, man, he says, okay, you handle five cities, let me give you ten. No, God, don't give me ten, because I can hardly handle five. Nope, you take ten. Now you've got to start walking on water. It is brilliant. Faith increases with faithful service. And how do you measure faithfulness? It's very difficult, guys, very difficult. Because Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what is expected of a steward but to be faithful? And he says, so I will try to be faithful. But by the way, you can't judge me because only one knows how well I'm doing with what I've been given. You can't judge me. But just because I think I'm innocent doesn't acquit me either. 1 Corinthians 4. And so it becomes this very hard thing. How do you judge whether someone is being faithful? Very difficult. You may think they haven't done what they're supposed to do. But what if... In the eyes of God, they were. How can you judge them? It's very difficult. Just keep that in mind. But faith increases through faithful service. So servanthood has a direct relationship to increase in faith. Therefore then, when I choose not to be a servant, my faith, begin, my faith begins to stagnate. My faith... Begins to stagnate. Uh, any questions before we go on to the third one? Hey, when Chad and his wife come, uh, be a little more responsive for the first day or so. After that, go back to normal. Because uh, when new people come, the first day, if they feel a little encouraged, they usually have steam for the next four days. So just smile and do a couple of umhums at the right time. Because I just realized I asked a question and there was absolute silence and that's perfectly okay with me because I know you're listening. Um, or I've convinced myself that you're listening. <laughs> Over the years, certain defaults set in. But just encourage them the first day. After Thursday, they'll be fine. The third surrender is the right to self-determination. 
The third surrender is the right to self-determination. All this is so politically incorrect. The right to self-determination. Uh, how can we define that? It is, it is to want what your will does not want. It is to want what your will does not want. Terribly. If only we could have stopped after the second one. It is to want what your will does not want. It is to be so dead in your union with, with Christ that you have no will but his. And so your will doesn't count anymore. It is to want what your will does not want. We'll give examples. It is to want what your will does not want because... You love someone more than life itself. It is to want what your will does not want because you love someone more than life itself. This is the ultimate place of surrender. Where I don't want to, oh God, but I will. Familiar echo, huh? Luke, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says that. In Matthew, sorry, in Matthew 26, 39, Jesus cried, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. It is to want what your will does not want. Desire this, guys. We have to start marching towards this. If I get there in two or three years, great. If I get there in one year, brilliant. It is to want what your will does not want. It's an absolute surrender. The word surrender is a dirty, dirty, dirty word. It goes against the grain of everything human. But it's such an awesome word. Hey, aren't you glad you belong to a God who makes such demands of you? And you, the only way you can respond to this demand is by liking him. There's just no other way around it. So, it is to want what your will does not want because you love someone more than life itself. Matthew 26, 39 is one example. Let me give you another example. John 21, 18. John 21, 18. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Hey Peter, when you were young, someone would dress, you would dress yourself up. We think it's very cute when kids, at, when they're two years old, decide what they want to wear. And parents talk about it uh, like fondly, repeatedly. <laughs> uh, and, and so when you were a kid, Jesus said to Peter, you used to dress yourself up and you would go wherever you wanted. But now that you are older, and he didn't mean age, and now that you are older, listen to these words. But when you are old, you will have someone else dress you up. You will stretch your out, hands out to them. You will have someone else dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus was talking about how Peter would be crucified. And John is writing 
his, his gospel after Peter's death, and he must have had such hindsight as he wrote that. Ah, shucks. Jesus had said this about Peter, and that's what happened to Peter. And there was a time when Peter denied Jesus because he wanted his own will. And yet, from what is said, he asked to be hanged, uh, to be crucified upside down. How do people change like that? Partly because of this thing called love and partly because of this willingness to surrender. Because Peter had the same advantage that you and I had. Because as long as Jesus was alive, Peter was pretty messed up. And then when the Holy Spirit came, everything changed. I love this next line. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. It's difficult. But before we go to that next line, let me give you one more scripture to talk about this. Luke 14, verse 26. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and then he gives a list of things you need to hate, as in the word hate there is love-less. The word hate there means love-less. And then it ends with this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate your da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and your very life, then Jacob, you are not worthy of being my disciple. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and he gives a whole list, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what are we, guys? What are we then? What are we? Maybe, maybe you're at that place already. What am I? Because I don't think I've come to a place where I love my life less. I like my right of determining my will. I hold on to it preciously. And then we come to this beautiful line. I'll write it down. The ultimate... The ultimate objective or goal of self-sacrifice goal of self-sacrifice that's why I started with that song the ultimate goal of self-sacrifice is to lay my life down for my friend and I mean Jesus Christ this now begins to help me walk towards that end. That the ultimate goal of self-sacrifice is to lay my life down for my friend. And the M is a capital M for my, and the F is a capital F for my friend. That I can now begin to fathom. That Jesus, I call you my friend because you call me your friend first. Jesus, you've been there since I can remember. Even before I was a believer, you were around and I was aware of you. Jesus, every day you're such a part of our lives. Don't know what we would do without you. Even calling you best friend sounds so pathetic because we got BBFs and MBFs and all that stuff here too. But, but oh God, I understand this. That the ultimate goal of self-sacrifice is laying my life down for my friend. That would be the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus, I'm going to start marching towards it because you have done so much for me that this would be a tiny, tiny, tiny thing I can do in return.
Capisci? Sei là? Isn't it awesome? We get an opportunity to actually lay our lives down for your friend. Gosh, we got tons of time left. What are we going to do? Yep. Yeah, sorry, can you ask that again? Yeah, uh, uh, the, perhaps it's semantics, but it's in, inside my head, and unfortunately I'm the one teaching. So, <laughs> um, the right to myself is okay. I, I, I will allow you to, um, um, I will allow God to use me as a servant in your life. Okay, so that's right to myself. Right to my will is, oh God, he's been using me as a doormat far too many times. He's exploited me. He's done this. He's done that. And I've been a servant as you wanted. That's it, Father. Now I have the right of self-determination where I choose not to because I will not let you continue to do what you're doing. So right to self-determination goes deeper than the right to myself because on one hand, I'm allowing God to use me as a servant, but there are things that I really don't want to do, oh God. And strangely enough, God will not beg or force. And therefore, the right to self-determination is when I say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had no desire, um, personal desire, like in, in his flesh. It wasn't like, put me on the cross, put me on the cross. No. But my God, there was something else beyond that that he was looking at. And therefore, he lays down his will. And it's a right given to every human being, the right of self-determination. If we wouldn't be human, if these two things were not given to us, the right to yourself and the right to self-determination are two wonderful things given to man. And it was the two things lost in the garden. The right to self and the right to self-determination were given and therefore they could choose to eat of the tree. If those were absent, we wouldn't have a problem. But they were both present. So how do we go about this? How do we, how do we get closer to surrendering to these three things? Um, I think our greatest enemy is self-preservation. Our greatest enemy is self-preservation. And we come from a stock that um, has been practicing self-preservation ever since Adam hid and blamed Eve. It's been going on. We come at least physically from a stock like that, not spiritually. Self-preservation is my greatest enemy to surrender. And some of it is because of um, the wounds that you carry and I carry. The pain, the fear, the um, anger, the pretense that I have to and you have to um, bear because of the wounds that you and I carry. I read this line somewhere. It says, we are wounded people and it is easier to love from a distance because I won't bump into your wounds and you won't bump into mine. 
We are wounded people. And so it is easier to love from a distance because that way I won't bump into your wounds and you won't bump into my wounds. Therefore, when I will hide my fears or I won't let you get too close to my fears. And if you do, you might see anger for a second, which I have learned now to pretend and suppress. But the best way is to keep you at a healthy distance. Self-preservation is sometimes because of the fear, the pain, the anger, the blame, the hurt that has been caused and because of the wounds we carry that are not healed yet. See, God can rewrite a memory from his perspective if you disown the wound. God can rewrite a memory from his perspective if you disown the wound. But to disown the wound, you have to uncover it and admit it. You have to receive healing and forgiveness. And offer forgiveness. Till that time, it's impossible for these wounds to go. So we end up living lives of self-preservation. And one of the things that none of us said is that the word freedom must be equated with another word. If you are free, then there is another thing that happens immediately in your life. If you are free, you will be transparent. Freedom and transparency go hand in hand. The freer a person is, the more transparent their life is. Transparent doesn't mean come and take over my life, come and invade my life. Transparent means you have the ability to see through and when they see through you, they see someone. Transparent isn't, this is who I am. If you like it, take it. If you don't like it, don't take it. That's not transparency. <laughs> That's obnoxious. Transparency is, hey, if you uh, look into my life, you'll see right through me and you'll see Jesus. So the first thing that uh, enables self-preservation is the wounds you have that are a result of pain, hurt, betrayal, uh, uh, blame, and sometimes a pretense. And sometimes what happens is, guys, all this expresses itself in anger that is either suppressed or explosive. Perfect example of someone who went through all this. And what did Jesus do first? As soon as he started walking on the beach, the first thing he dealt with was Peter's sense of I was so messed up after that betrayal, man. You can't imagine what... I mean, sometimes I've kind of tried imagining what Peter went through. I mean, he, he was the leader. He promised the world. And within a matter of six hours, or three and a half or four hours, he had sold Jesus. And now people don't know, because nobody knew he had done this, except for the non-disciples. 
Nobody else knew. So he's carrying the guilt of this, eh? Because he hasn't told anybody yet, because the servant girl and the other soldiers know, but none of his compatriots know. And he's going fishing and he's trying to do everything possible. And then he sees Jesus at the beach and there's this, you can imagine how on one hand he doesn't want to face up to Jesus. On the other hand, how can he resist someone who he has dearly loved? He jumps out and the first thing he does is go fall at Jesus' feet and Jesus begins this process of, I know what happened. Because Jesus looked at him when the cock crowed the third time. And the first thing Jesus deals with is, There's just no way around self-preservation as long as I hold on to these things, guys. Just no way. Any questions? Sorry, which one? Pretense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Pretense. I think some of the ministry you did was to take care of these things, right? With people? No, you sue. Yeah, where you deal with the pain, the hurt of people so that they can get past this place where otherwise you go into self-preservation, man. And self-preservation is the enemy of surrender. And once I can't surrender, then everything really is about me. It's not about God. Any questions? Okay. So here's a question that I want to ask. Can Jesus help himself to your life at will? Can Jesus help himself to your life at will? Be careful how you answer this. <laughs> I was thinking of saying yes, and then I thought, what if he actually does? Can Jesus help himself at will to my life? What does that look like? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. He'll begin to use your life To serve his interests and purposes in others. That's the catch, eh? It's really got nothing to do with you. It's taking your life and giving it away as he pleases because of his interests and purposes in others. Can Jesus take anything from your life at will? Can Jesus help himself to your life at will? What does that look like? What does it look like? Here's what it looks like. He'll begin to use your life to serve the interests and the purposes of others. And you won't have a say in it. Nor will he require your permission. You can have a say in it. But the intent is you don't have a say in it. And he won't need your permission to do it. What's scary is if you go down this route, we might think it's actually the devil. When it's God. Because our ultimate example and model is Jesus, this is what happened to him. 
the father said, okay, Jesus, can I help myself to your life at will? What does it look like, father? <laughs> can I begin to use your life to serve the interests and purposes of Jacob, of Nick, of whoever? And that's exactly what he did. Went, scooped whatever he wanted out of Jesus' life and did what he wanted with it so that today we see a harvest. <laughs> and, for, and here's the other thing. This is the, where it really gets ugly. If you say yes to this, it's not like Jesus reaches out his hand to do it. He uses someone else's hand to do it. And that is when it gets ugly. Because if Jesus used his hand, ah, the nail-scarred hand, I worship you, Lord. But when it's my pudgy hand, it's a whole different thing. Or Don's, uh, yeah, then it's a whole different thing. Now do you see what Jesus meant? Now he's restored Peter, and Peter's standing there. Look at what Jesus says. Uh, do you love me? Because the ultimate expression of surrender, uh, the ultimate goal of self-sacrifice for a friend is when you lay your life down for your friend. And what is Jesus saying to Peter when he says, feed my sheep? It sounds very pastoral, feed my sheep, as in stand behind the pulpit and preach. No, what he's saying is, hey, do you love me? Well, if you love me, then pour out your life. That is what feed my sheep means. Feed my sheep is not a message. My God, we think it's just a simple teaching. It's not a teaching. Feed my sheep means blooming. Go pour out your life, man. And so he's asking Peter. Three times he asked him, do you love me? Peter says, of course I do. Uh, second time he says, you know. Third time he says, stop asking me these questions. You know better than to ask me, as in, you know my heart condition. And Jesus each time replies, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, as in, pour out your life. Not feed my sheep, as in on Sunday. Pour out your life. Hey, don't you do that with your children? I mean, when does it stop? When they turn six, 16, 26? Pardon? 19. You wish. 90. Yeah, that makes sense. John 21, 17. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. As in, pour yourself out. And my God, pour yourself out for reverend sheep that just want to hear the master's voice? No. Pour yourself out on unkempt, head-butting, stubborn strays that resist the voice of the shepherd. Just as I did for you, Peter. That is what he's asking. I'm done. I'm heading this way. I don't know when I'll get there, but I ain't planning on three years. I want to get there faster. Because I'm already 50-something. Guys, we'll, here's what we'll be teaching in the future, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of God compels me. How is it that these guys became servants 
to the point where they would give up anything, do anything, surrender anything. They all had the same advantages that you and I had. Some of them came from really rich backgrounds, some from poor backgrounds, but they all had this ability to lay down, surrender, all for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Providing their bodies not just as a means to carry something somewhere, or carry the treasure somewhere, but providing the bodies to be burnt on the stake, torn apart by horses, sawed. Hebrews 11 talks about it. How did they do it? One of the ways, and we must talk about it, we will te I'll teach about it, is the love of God compels me. How does the love of God compel someone to do something like that? I mean, I don't necessarily see it in this room, and I'm sure you don't see it in me. How does this happen? That's the first one. And the second one is from um, John seventeen twenty three. John seventeen twenty three and Romans five five. And basically, it is Jesus' prayer to the Father, and He says, "Father, can you make them one with us? Can you make them one with us?" So that our love may flow through them and they will be known as our disciples. Our love may flow through them. And the world may know that you send them and they are my disciples. Romans 5 puts it this way. We can't, round it, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. I mean, have you gotten to a point, and I ask this with suspicion that you haven't, and if I'm wrong, um, too bad. Um, have you gotten to the point, because I have not, have you gotten to the point, and I'm not the measure of this church, I'm just saying, have you gotten to the point where it is impossible to suppress or exhaust his love through you for others? Have you gotten to the point where it is impossible to suppress or exhaust his love through you for others? Is this what fuels you? Where you can't suppress the enormous love that God has through you for others. Where you can't exhaust it, I can understand, can't suppress it. Where it's continuously surging forth. Is that how you view the world? Because if it is how you view the world, then my God, you're already on fire, man. This is actually called being on fire for God. Fire is liquid love that the Holy Spirit brings through you that cannot be suppressed but is so molten that it begins to pour out and there aren't enough containers to contain it because Romans 5, 5 says the Holy Spirit brings it where you cannot sit because you are compelled the love of God compels me says Paul to go and speak to others and proclaim the message of reconciliation I cannot stay still it's that touched by the fire song if you are there my God blessed am I that you are in this church and I'm the pastor of this church and if you're not there we'll go there man because I desperately want to go there 
There is no other reason for our existence. Everything else aligns when the kingdom comes first. And so ask yourself this question as we sing a couple of songs. The first question is, when Jesus met the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, he said, one thing you lack. And then he said, go sell. What is this one thing that prevent, uh, what, what is the one thing that is your strongest reason for self-preservation? Let's think of that for a couple of seconds. What is, this, what is the one thing that you need to sell if you have to take a step towards, self, uh, towards ending self-preservation and commencing surrender? What is the one thing that Jesus would confront you with saying, hey, you lack in this, Jacob, and this is preventing you from letting go of self-preservation and from commencing surrender. What is the one thing? Just think of it for a couple of minutes. You lack one thing, Jesus said. And then he said, go sell this. What is the one thing you lack? Or what would you have to sell so that you can be free of it? Holy Spirit, I please ask that you do with the light of your life what no one else can do. Illuminate recesses in my life so that the, what is what is dead is exposed so I can sell it. What are the two things about? Father, I'm assuming you brought it to our minds. Help us not to forget what you've just shown us. Help me not to forget what you've pointed out. The two factors that prevent me from surrender or servanthood. I almost assume the right to be this way because I have the right. Help me not to forget the things you pointed out so that I can uncover it before you.
Holy Spirit, I trust. I trust you. I trust that the work that you have begun, you will complete. Because my words can't do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, I hope you understand how powerful these teachings are. They're very, very powerful. They go really far deep into places that we usually don't examine. And the teaching is powerful. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what God wants to do in our lives because of what he wants to shape us into. He's sharpening a spearhead. I want to sing down on my knees again, surrendering all. That's one of the songs I want to sing, and then we'll see if we need to sing any other song.